I'm AJ Bianco, host of Reflect Ed, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. You know, a couple of years ago, my uh, my wedding band started having problems. And I've had it for 34 years, and uh, it started breaking at, at the backside of it. And we had it fixed a couple of different times. And then eventually, not too long ago, one of those, that backside just fell out, and it couldn't be fixed any longer. And I'm like, this is crazy. I, you know, I shouldn't have to deal with this. And, and so anyway, then a friend told me about uh, Boone Titanium Rings, and uh, which is at booneringscom And they have this incredible selection of titanium rings. And, and uh, I now have a titanium ring as my wedding band. What's really cool is like, it's an engraved ring that has uh, these cool car pistons on it and some stars. And, and the, I could have chosen from any kind of different stand, uh, styles, as well as they have all these other different types of rings, like uh, inlays that have meteorite, wood, acrylic, stone, and things like that. That they also make uh, carved rings and, and, a, and just a, an assortment of other rings that uh, are just pretty amazing. They also make pendants and cufflinks and earrings, and as well as a couple different types of tools. Um, I got to tell you something; it's really cool because this ring's not going to break, <laughs> and uh, they they'll make you happy. And uh, just as a note. Uh, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, um, they've become an affiliate sponsor for us. And so if you were to use our code, which is capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, the number 12, and uh, use that at checkout, you get 10% off your ring, and uh, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 gets a commission. I think you're going to love their rings. I know I'd love mine. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Gabriele Damonico, the president and executive director of A Chance in Life. You may have some knowledge of A Chance in Life. It was originally known as Boys and Girls Towns, founded shortly after World War II. A Chance in Life is an international nonprofit that provides shelter and support to nearly 4,000 youth. So much to learn today. You're going to love this conversation. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it would be so cool if you would go into that app you're listening to me on and rate it and review the podcast. What do you think? It would be so nice if you did that. Thank you. Enjoy. District leaders nationwide have confirmed that online learning is here to stay. As one in five districts are planning to adopt or have already adopted a fully online school. With the evolving landscape in the competitive field of education, you might be wondering what you can do to stand out. Well, I encourage you to look into National Virtual Teacher Association, or NVTA, to pursue a college-accredited program recognized by states across the country to certify educators in online education. Their certification empowers educators to provide the world-class virtual instruction that every student deserves. The average teacher needs one semester to complete the program, and it culminates in a digital portfolio that you may use in job interviews or even with your current administration to, you know, <laughs> negotiate a raise or promotion. Some of the topics to be covered in the certification include establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources. The NVTA certification process was created to establish a valid and reliable research-based teacher qualification training process for virtual teachers to enhance their teaching and develop their ongoing reflective skills to improve teaching capacity. NVTA certification is a challenging and meaningful process to support your personal and professional goals. NVTA is an affiliate partner for Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Click the link in the show notes or go to my webpage, stephenmaletto.com, find the NVTA logo and go to their website that way. And if you do that, 
If you buy something, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission, and I greatly thank you for that. So go check them out. I think you'll be glad you did. You are listening to Teaching Learning Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. Now here's Steve with this week's show. President and Executive Director of A Chance in Life, since February 2015, Gabriele Del Monaco heads the national operations of the organization from its New York office, reporting directly to the chairman of the board. He is leading the organization in our next phase of growth and international expansion. A Chance in Life is an international nonprofit that provides shelter, food, and education, including financial literacy, for underprivileged and refugee youth throughout the world, including here in the United States. Originally known as Boys and Girls Towns, the organization came into being 75 years ago after World War II. Its goal was to provide a home to vast numbers of children who had been displaced and to give them a chance in life. Not only did the institution offer them a home, but its unique system of self-government gave these young people the opportunity to pursue an education and to develop the confidence and the creativity they need to become active participants in their communities. Fast forward to today, and this international nonprofit is providing shelter and support to nearly 4,000 homeless, vulnerable, and refugee youth in nine countries, with plans to open one in the United States in the coming weeks. ACIL's unique model of self-governance lets youth have complete control over how their town runs, even forming their own currency. They not only learn to think critically, but how to speak out for themselves and those around them. Gabrielli, a native Italian, moved to the United States in 2001 from Rome. He possesses more than 25 years' experience in the nonprofit field with a proven track record as a chief operating officer and as a fundraiser managing multinational teams. Most recently, Gabrielli served the Jesuits of the New York and New England provinces as VP for Advancement and Communications, leading a successful merger of the two provinces. Previously, he served as chief executive officer of the U.S. branch of the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, an international agency that provides humanity humanitarian aid and pastoral support in the Middle East, Northeast Africa, Eastern Europe, and Asia. Gabrielli also worked at the Vatican as Associate Director of Finance for eight years. Gabrielli holds an MBA in Marketing and a BS in Organization Management from Nyack College in New York. He resides in New York City with his family. Gabrielli, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great having you here and uh, yeah, I got my question that I wanted to start with, but I got to ask you this. You know, you, you, you were an associate director for finance for eight years at the Vatican. Now, that's, that's cool. What? It was an amazing experience, Stephen. And I still remember, you know, the emotions of the feelings of going through the Vatican walls every morning to go to work. Now, um, my office was on Via della Conciliazione, which is the main road that leads to uh, the St. Peter's Square. But the buildings on Via della Conciliazione, at least most of them, are extraterritorials. In other, in other words, they belong to the Vatican, and they are, they would say, they would be the same as probably as an embassy. So the Italian police, for example, cannot enter in these buildings because they belong to the Vatican. It's another state. So it was an emotion every day to go there and then to go to the Vatican Bank every morning greeted by the Swiss guys. I still remember it very well. That's awesome. That's that's cool. Thanks for telling me about that. That's uh, when I read that. I meant to. I meant to say. I I got to ask you about that because that has to be a, a unique feeling to to have done that every day. So, 
very cool. So, uh, uh, so let's let's go into a little history about a chance in life. And I gotta I gotta ask because you know one of the things I, I remember out of my memory. I don't know if you ever watched any old movies or not, but I think there's a what was it a Bing Crosby movie or something called Boys Town or one of the big actors from the time. Uh, so can you give us a little history about a chance in life? I mean, has it been in existence for 75 years? How's it evolved? And how did the challenges of today differ from those at the time of your nonprofit's beginnings and how are they still the same? Yes, uh, you're right. There are, I guess, you know, a couple of movies and definitely a documentary as well. But let me bring you back in time for a moment. Imagine it's a uh, World War II, World War II is ending in, in Italy, and uh, there is a, an Irish priest who was working at the time at the Vatican. His name was Monsignor John Patrick Carroll Abing. He worked at the Vatican at the Secretary of State, the State Department uh, of the Vatican, uh, and doing translations mostly. But he noticed the plight of the many children that were wandering on the streets of, of Rome in particular. And he wanted to do something about it. They were orphans because of the war. He really wanted to help them. In particular, there is a, a story that he told in one of his books. It was 19, the 1st of February of 1944. He was visiting Albano Laziale, one of the little towns around Rome, just to uh, see how he could help the local population. All of a sudden, he saw a bunch of airplanes over his head. And in no time, the bombing started. It was an allied bombing. And he, he found refuge in one of the shops there. When he went out of, this, of the shop after the bombing, he noticed that all of a sudden he could see uh, the, um, the panorama was open up because many of the buildings were destroyed. He found a little boy in front of a house who was just bombed. He was next to his mother's body. And the mother was dead, but the boy was two or three, as our founder recalls in his book, and he was trying to wake up his mom, saying, Mama, Mama. But of course, his mother was died. At that moment, our founder felt uh, powerless. He didn't know what to do. But he decided that from that time on, he would do something for the orphans of the war in a very unique way. So he... Um, in the initial thought was, okay, I'm going to get some, some help and start a program. He went to the Holy Father, the Pope at the time was Pope Pius XII, and told him, Your Holiness, someone has to do something about these children in Rome and in Italy. And the Pope told him, uh, Monsignor, you have our blessing. He used the plural as popes do. You have our blessing. Go and do something about it. So he realized, our founder realized that he had the blessing of the Pope, but no money. So he came to the United States, founded our organization, A Chance in Life, and started raising money for a program in Italy. His first program was a failure. He found a building next to the station where most of the children were living, were on the streets trying to help passengers with their luggage or shining shoes. And he created a shoe shine hotel a residential building where kids could go and have a hot meal and sleep at night. But he noticed that most of the ch these children after a while were running away. One time he found one of the very first kids he uh, helped, Michelangelo, on the streets again and asked him, why did you leave? You had a hot meal, you had a place where to stay. And Michelangelo told him, well, Monsignor, for too long, we have been accustomed to living by ourselves. 
we don't want adults to tell us what to do in an institution. And that was the sparkle that ignited the idea. Our founder told him, what if I create a town and I let you run it? Michelangelo said, well, that's an idea. So Boys and Girls Towns of Italy was born. In 1953, the first uh, town in Rome for children was created. A few years earlier, actually, he also worked with another priest. And in Civitavecchia, he founded the Boys and Girls Republic. Both institutions are still there in Italy today. Very cool. Very cool. That's what an incredible uh, beginning to the organization and, and to still be active. I mean, because that's uh, to be able to make it through the different transitions and so forth that's gone on over the years. It's just amazing. So so let's let's kind of shift gears into and let's get into what the, the purpose is, especially in this modern world. Can you tell us a little bit about Chance in Life's mission now? Yes, as I mentioned, a Chance in Life was created to support initially these two programs in Italy. Uh, it's an independent organization here in the United States, and it relies only on the generosity of individual donors. We don't receive government grants at the moment. A chance in life over the years evolved. In Italy, the situation has improved. We do not have orphans of the war anymore. Thanks be to God. The social services have improved. But right now, what we are seeing is an influx of unaccompanied minors coming from Africa, from the Middle East, wherever there are crises around Italy, families, most, most of the times, put their kids on a boat to cross the Mediterranean Sea to find better luck in Italy. So we have these kids unaccompanied coming to Italy. They first go through social services, the Red Cross in Italy and other governmental organizations screen them, and then they're assigned to institutions like ours. So they arrive and they get support. So our board in 2015 had an idea, why don't we work in the countries from where these children are coming from? Why don't we help them in their own homes so that we can, they can uh, uh, keep their traditions, they can speak the same language? Right now in Italy, the kids we have speak different languages, have different religious backgrounds, so it's very difficult in a way to work with them. But... The idea was, why can we help them at home? And so in 2015, we opened our first program in Ethiopia, about four hours from Addis Ababa, going south. And at that time, it took four hours and a couple of tires because the road was so bad that, uh, you know, in, in reaching the destination, we, we would have to change tires every time. It's a very rural area. And in Ethiopia, uh, elementary schools are very well spread out across the country. But when it comes to high school, they become rare. So on average, an Ethiopian kid, particularly in rural areas, has to walk for two hours, most of the time, you know, barefoot to go to high school each way. So there was a problem because uh, girls primarily were, uh, you know, kidnapped for uh, you know, uh, marry, early marriages, sometimes for sexual exploitation. So we decided to do something about it. We created a hostel, a little town in Ethiopia as well, a village where these girls could live together close to the high school and complete their studies. And then you know, from there, we opened programs in tribal areas in India. We opened programs in Latin America, where right now we work in Bolivia, Colombia, Guatemala, Peru, and Mexico. And now we are planning on opening our first program in our own backyard in your city. 
Gotcha. Very cool. And, and so since you've got this pro, these programs that are going, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, um, you know, a little bit about how they're established and, uh, and, and a little bit there. So could you talk about the towns that are established for the children? I mean, do, do all your towns have children living on site? And how did the young people who are in your towns run them? Most of our children, most of our, you know, towns are residential. That means that the children live there. They attend public schools, so are perfectly connected to their environment. They're not in isolation. They don't live in a bubble. But when they're in the town, they're in charge of it. So in our towns, the first step is to write a constitution. So our kids write their own uh, bylaws, their own policies, their own rules. They elect their own, their own leaders. So they have their own mayor, assemblymen, assemblywomen, judges, attorneys, commissioners, and so on and so forth. Each person is in charge of a specific aspect of their lives. Twice a week, they have an assembly, a sort of a parliament, where they come together at night and they discuss uh, about the issues they have encountered, the successes, uh, problems that need to be solved in their community. And that's a very democratic process. Adults are invited to this meeting, but if they want to talk, they have to raise their hand and ask for permission to participate in it. But they cannot vote. Only the children can vote. So at these um, uh, meetings, uh, the usual structure is there is the assembly, but then there is the mayor, the councilmen, councilwomen, and also a secretary who writes the minutes for the, um, the, the meeting. At the next meeting, the minutes of the previous meeting are read so that everybody knows what happened and the progress that is being made. One of the most fascinating aspects of this living together is they have their own currency. So in Italy, that currency is called the merit. So for every chore they do, uh, every participation in the, in the um, community life, they are paid, they get paid. And so there is also a bank where they can deposit their, their uh, savings. And that, that's very good because it's you know, a, an introduction to financial literacy in a way by leaving it. And uh, at La Repubblica dei Ragazzi, the Boys and Girls Republic in Civitavecchia, the director has created now an ATM system. So kids can connect to their computer, see how much savings they have. And then inside the town, on campus, there is a, a bazaar, they call it, a shop, where they can go and buy little items like uh, soft drinks or uh, internet uh, uh, cards and so on and so forth. In Ethiopia, in India, in Latin America, we have similar situations, but we wanted to be very respectful of the local tradition. So self-government, which is a term that um, reminds of, you know, it might uh, have political connotations in a way, but it doesn't. It just means that the boys and girls uh, basically run their own lives, their own community there. So it has different connotations in different countries, but the principles are the same. And we could say that they're based on the positive youth development principles, which is uh, basically considering the kids not as problems to be solved, but as assets to be nurtured. And that's our philosophy. That's awesome. The, and can you talk, I mean, because basically what, you know, the, uh, and I, you know, it's funny what you said. I, I can imagine that uh, in being in different countries and such, there is a possibility of running a, a skew of the, uh, of whatever the, <laughs> of, I guess the government's thoughts about uh, 
how the kids do things and such. Uh, what uh, or what you're teaching them, I guess, is uh, you know about their own uh, their own world. Um, but what you're really teaching them is self-reliance. I mean, and, and what's really cool, can you just talk about this from the aspect of, I mean, the kids are um, ages 12 to 24, and uh, they, they take part in programs like uh, tutoring and, like you said, the financial literacy, uh, mental health counseling, and leadership development. Could you talk about why you focus on these programs and just get into that a little bit more about the self-reliance? Well, in most cases, imagine, these are kids that are on a boat, and they come to Italy, they've lost their hope in, uh, um, you know, in uh, human beings that have lost their hope in general. Uh, so when they come, there is a process. Uh, and uh, the process usually goes through three phases. The first one is acceptance. So the child who enters the town is accepted by its community and he, acts, he or she accepts to be part of that community. So that's a, a very enforced, important first step. The second one is participation. Little by little, the child, the youth, start to participate in the life of the community so that they can arrive to the third phase, belonging. Once they feel that they belong to a community, then they are fully engaged and their hope is restored. So it's a process. And it goes through, most of the times, through these um, three phases. When the kids arrive at the town, they have a period of about you know, 30 days where they can decide whether to stay or to leave. And for example, at La Repubblica dei Ragazzi, the Boys and Girls Republic in Civitavecchia, the gates of the institution, I hate to call it institution, but you know, for lack of better terms, of the town, are always open. So at any time, youth can come and go. If they, are, you know, if they feel that they want to leave, they can go. There is no, there are no restrictions, no security, and but you know, in our experience, seventy-five years, uh, very few left, and if they did, they came back. In uh, so, those are some of the key elements, and we learned that by empowering the kids to take responsibility for their lives and the lives of of those living in their their, their community, they become one day they will become uh, responsible citizens. Uh, the uh, we're talking about, you know, what do they do in the town? So yes, you mentioned financial literacy, you mentioned psychological uh, support, um, but there is there are also some very practical aspects. In Italy, in Rome, for example, we have a ceramic lab where the kids uh, learn how to work the ceramic. In Italy, as you know, it's a big it's a big deal and it has also historical ties. But there is also a Toyota. Uh, mechanical center on campus offered by Toyota. So kids can go there and learn how to repair cars, modern cars. So it's all electronic and done through the computer. And um, that's another activity that they do. And there is also another one, which is very practical and I love it. Kids love to make pizza. And so over time, thanks to the generosity of some donors, we built a bakery on campus in Rome and so there are chefs who volunteer their time. They come and they teach kids how to make pizza. And, you know, most of the African kids who come to Italy now, for most of the kids who come from Africa, their dream is to open a pizzeria in Italy. Very nice. Very nice. That's that's cool. That's uh, And it's neat. Those different types of programs like that have got to be very inspiring because they could see how, you know, I, I guess what their world could be, I, I guess, is as opposed to not having uh, any thoughts of their own future. 
Sure, and these vocational centers are, are not a peculiarity of Italy only. In Ethiopia, for example, there is a vocational school. The Ethiopian school system is uh, uh, simple in a way to explain, you know, they go to school until eight, um, until 10th grade. Then uh, when uh, they are in 10th grade, there is a national exam to assess if they're ready for university or if they need to go to a vocational school. So those who pass the exam uh, will be uh, enrolled in a two-year program. It's called preparatory school before they go to college. But those who will not pass that exam can, can attend a vocational school. And, you know, we need to be sensitive. Not everybody can go to university. So these kids have a vocational school in our area where we work. By the way, the, the town there is called Mdibir, and the region is called Gurage in Ethiopia. And uh, the, techni- the vocational school is called uh, St. Anthony, and there they learn all kinds of skills. You know, Ethiopia is uh, in need of electricians, plumbers, uh, computer technicians. Those are skills that are really required. Uh, m- some of the buildings in Ethiopia were built during the Italian occupation for five years, and so you have some beautiful buildings, hotels, roads, but they need repairs. And so having vocational, this type of skills is very important. Not everybody can be a doctor. We need everyone to contribute to society. And this is what our kids are learning. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. You will be helpful to the society one day. I love it. That is so cool. The, uh, uh, you know, and I got to go back to the Toyota one. That's uh, uh, what an an amazing sort of because nothing against because uh, the ceramics is really cool too. So I, and uh, ha- having an uncle who's an artist who works with uh, uh, ceramic and brass and all kinds of cool stuff. I uh, but uh, you know but, but I think that's that's pretty awesome that you we're also talking uh, um, the mechanics of current vehicles and uh, modern vehicles and such and that's got to be very. Uh, I mean, how, how did the, do you know how that came about? That's a neat partnership to kind of. It was yes, it was a Toyota program that wanted to, um, in a way, uh, solicit interest in uh, in the world of uh, you know being a a mechanic. And a mechanic, you know, is not just someone who can get his hands dirty, you know, working on an engine. Today, things have evolved. You need people who are prepared who can use a computer, connect the computer to the car detect the problem and then you know it's mostly electric or electronic so this was a program that uh, like the stem program in the us tried to in a way uh, rise the uh, create awareness about this these professions and you know there is a need for it in italy and in other parts of the world that's it. most definitely there's a need for it and especially to understand that electronics part you know it's like it's you know the, the days of uh, it's a big engine and there's you know you tweak here tweak there yeah, that's not quite it anymore. So, uh, yeah, they usually say, yeah, there's something wrong with the computer. Nice. Okay. Which one? <laughs> Good stuff. That, that, very cool. So, uh, so until now you've been focused abroad. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you're expanding in the United States and where do you see the need? And, and uh, let, let's go from there. Again, the initiative started from our board members and, you know, I thank them because they're very supportive um, about the ideas that we developed uh, among our team. Um, Particularly with COVID, we realized that there is a big need in our backyard as well, you know, in our neighborhoods. So I live in New York City, specifically on Staten Island. Um, So we did a feasibility study to see, is there a need 
for the youth um, in your city. And of course, you know, the from the feasibility study, we learned that there are pockets like the Bronx or Queens that are, you know, uh, a couple of the five boroughs of New York City, where yes, there is a great need for the youth, but these areas are also well served by government agencies, other nonprofit organizations, because they were on the news for so long. But I live on Staten Island, and uh, we, the feasibility study told us that in the northern part of Staten Island, which is the island in front of the tip of Manhattan, just for geographical reference, um, there is a big issue of um, youth detachment, uh, idle youth. And those are young people who do not go to school, who do not work. Sometimes they live with their families if they have one. But in most cases, you know, they run the risk of being engaged by gangs or start using drugs and so uh, go on the wrong path. And there is a big need in the north shore of Staten Island. So we decided to do something there. So our idea is to create a drop-in youth center. We recently uh, both, um, bought uh, a building here on uh, the north shore. And uh, we'll just doing some renovation. We'll be ready to start soon. The big difference between the Italian program and the Staten Island program, the New York City program, is that here we cannot have a residential uh, type of uh, environment or program because of the local laws is very difficult, you know, but we will have a drop-in center where youth can find a safe harbor, come and participate in a number of uh, programs we will be offering. And we did a test, a virtual um, test recently during COVID. So we had a group of high school students who uh, participated in a financial literacy uh, class course we invited a CEO of, um, of a company, of a brokerage company. He came virtually and he talked about financial literacy and the interest of the kids was amazing. So we thought, you know, some of the topics like interest, credit cards, student loans were, oh, you know, should I rent or buy? Should I invest or just keep my money under the mattress or put it in the bank? Uh, were, you know, kind of foreign to most of the kids. They were, but as they were listening to it, uh, we realized that there is really an interest in these topics. And these programs could be really a life changer for many of the children because they, they, they don't know some of the basic principles of finance or even, you know, budgeting for a family. So it was a program, very a very successful program, and we are going to definitely repeat it. Another program that will start just in a few weeks is in um, collaboration with uh, an Indian company who has a large presence in, in the United States. The name of the company is Tata. You know, they make cars in India, but in the United States, they are very strong on technology. Most of the apps we use, mostly apps related to banking, are produced by this company. So they would like to uh, solicit to uh, foster the interest in STEM education. So together with them, we will uh, organize a program called Go IT, where IT stands for stands for you know information technology, and we will have a twenty hour course for kids, high school kids, and they will learn how to program, how to 
program an app, basically. And then there would be a contest at the end of this course with a certificate and the members of the uh, Tata uh, consultancy, consultancy group will, will participate and um, select the best app. So it's a way to introduce younger generations to technology and uh, to STEM education. That's awesome. Very cool. The, uh, especially with, uh, are you finding, I mean, so let me make sure, has it opened yet? It, it's, and it, it's going and working. And, uh, um, so what, what, uh, um, are, are you finding that it's working pretty well with the drop-in? I mean, the, the kids, cause you know, like you said, in the other programs, the gates are open and they can leave whenever they want. Um, obviously if, if it's a drop-in program, they've, <laughs> they've got to want to stay. So, um, and, and come back the next day type thing. So how's that, uh, how's that looking now? Well, as I mentioned at the moment, this program is only uh, conducted virtually because of COVID, we, do, we cannot have the students in, um, in our center. And the center is under renovation. We just bought it. So, But um, we realized that there was a very high interest in um, this type of activities, which connect kids directly to opportunities, um, uh, work opportunities one day. So we had another uh, course with... Um, high school students, and uh, they learn about nonprofit organizations. So they work for us as interns after school. It's a program that has been financed by the uh, Youth and Community Development Department of New York City. So the city was paying for the salary, let's call it that way, of the youth working as interns with our organization. And the students got an opportunity to learn. So the way we structured this program was to um, create awareness of the nonprofit sector. So they learn how to uh, nonprofit, um, nonprofit uh, organization management, budgeting, advertising, advertising, marketing. They spend time working with us on real problems we need to solve and they contribute with their, with their, uh, so their solutions, ideas, and they saw how uh, to solve problems uh, in, a, in an organization. Again, we, we had several guests that uh, came and participated and shared their real-life um, experience. But uh, the final project for this group of eight students was, we have a problem, we told them. And uh, we have students in uh, the countries we support overseas in Ethiopia and India and Latin America that need a sponsor here in the United States so that they can continue to go to school. Help us develop a marketing plan to raise enough money to send these kids for at least one year in school and to participate in our program. So the kids came up with uh, a marketing plan. They created TikTok videos. I'm not an expert in TikTok, <laughs> but apparently it's very trendy nowadays. <laughs> and, and then started raising money where they're very close to reaching the budget. The uh, campaign will close in about 10 days. So they needed to raise almost $3,000. But this is not about the money. It's about connecting kids in New York City with kids overseas who are struggling even with basic human needs. And, and so they got it and they're doing whatever they can to make that possible. I think it was a very educational uh, program. That's awesome. It sounds like it. And it just sounds, you know, um, just like you said, you're creating connections with people you're becoming, you're helping. And, uh, and then the program becomes, you know, just one more part of it, I guess, is uh, uh, of what they're learning and so forth, which is, which is just so awesome. And obviously, 
this COVID world is, you know, kind of helped, you know, you have to approach this a little differently and, uh, and uh, kind of uh, make adjustments and all of that. Are you looking forward to being able to shift gears into a different, you know, in kind of a different world out of this virtual land? I mean, what sort of plans do you have as, as we, when we come out of the COVID um, fear? That's a great question, Stephen, because, you know, like for everyone else, we were caught by surprise by COVID. We had great plans to start a program in the U.S. to reinforce and continue our programs overseas, and then COVID happened. So when the situation changed, the strategy has to change as well. So that's what we did, basically. The first emergency we had to face was uh, considering the fact that these were kids who normally don't have a family. I'm talking about the overseas program now. They don't have a family. They don't have food on the table and they don't have anyone. So they were in an institution or in a town, um, our towns, because they didn't have any support. When the government ordered all these kids to go, to go back home or whatever home was for them, they faced a real problem. Now they were going to maybe a, par- a relative or the only parent they have or to difficult situations at home. So we uh, raised money uh, to provide them with food packages. We distributed uh, thousands of food packages in Latin America, in Ethiopia, and in India to respond to basic the basic human needs of of uh, you know that they were facing, like having food. Then the next step was, okay, now they're attending schools virtually. That's fine for my kids, maybe your kids, our kids. But imagine being in in Ethiopia. How do you attend school virtually? You don't have, I mean, there is internet. Uh, In Latin America, there is internet, but they don't have tablets. They don't have computers at home. They have nothing. So we provided them with tablets, in most cases, and an an internet data card so that they can use that to connect to the school and participate in in the program. So I think this happened a lot during COVID, and we responded to this emergency. Now, as they go back to school, we will resume our programs. And I'll tell you a personal story about how COVID is impacting. And according to the UNESCO, almost 1.6 billion learners were affected by COVID one way or another. That's 94% of the learners around the world. So imagine. I like to bring, you know, I have four kids. One is in college. The other three are very close in age. They are 10, 8, and 8. The last two are twins. So, you know, they're they're attending school virtually. They did for most of the past academic year. I noticed something. They're attending school by using tablets and computers, laptops. So they do their homework on their computers, on their laptops. And here it is, you know, they use Word, for example, and the automatic spell corrector kicks in. So my kids are forgetting how to write. You know, the automatic spell corrector makes their life much easier. They don't think anymore. They don't reflect anymore. So they don't know how to write anymore. I think, you know, the letter to Santa Claus this year will be very, very, will be full of mistakes. (laughs) Uh, uh, But that's the problem. So uh, one, one thing that I think we need to address as we go back to school, maybe with our after school programs, is to fill this gap that COVID has created. Now, the writing is just one example, but even, you know, being in a social context, sharing things with others, we are forgetting all of that. Our kids are forgetting all of that. So those are some of the challenges. 
That's yeah. It's just amazing. I mean, I, like like you said, to think that uh, one of the things I have to do is uh, maybe spend some time catching them back up on some of those writing skills and some of that uh, that to take advantage of with the self correcting. Although I got to tell you, um, it may be AI, but it drives me nuts because it's like really that's what you want to put there. That's not what I use. What do we? Do? <laughs> It's taught me to read what it writes. That's for sure. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yes. Very, very cool what you guys are doing. I, I, so let's talk about extracurricular activities. I mean, you know, extracurricular activities are going to be even more critical in the coming months as we're, you know, as we're finishing up in, uh, in COVID and, and wherever it goes from here. And, uh, you know, in light of the events of this last year, the, cr the craving that many for social connection is, has never been greater. I mean, how will this need for social connection be nurtured through your group? Well, thanks be to God, now all the um, uh, schools uh, are partially open in all the 10 countries in which we work at the moment. Bolivia was the last one to reopen schools partially very recently. So in every country where we work, there is at least some, uh, uh, I guess, in-person academic activity that is carried out. Uh, regarding, you know, the extracurricular activities, uh, in uh, the towns in Italy, our kids never left the, um, the town because they didn't have a place where to stay. So they kept going on with activities within the community. And uh, we, need, we provided, uh, you know, extra computers so that they could do computer classes. They also did a lot of uh, sport activities. Again, uh, bakery classes, very practical things that are very important. I think these extracurricular activities uh, have an advantage. You know, they can uh, um, uh, develop the curiosity in, uh, in, uh, in the youth for um, professions that one day uh, could become their, their passion. I'll give you an example. When we work with the eight students from the New York public school system, when they approached the nonprofit sector, sector, they thought it was like, you know, with all due respect, but, you know, it was like a parish, you know, collecting money on Sunday or whatever the case may be. They didn't think that behind a nonprofit organization, there is actually uh, a group of professionals that have different skills, an accountant, uh, someone who's an expert in marketing, donor relations officers, uh, a CEO, and so on and so forth. There is a board. So uh, at the end of this um, 12 weeks uh, week program with them, uh, the, some of the, we did a, you know, a survey at the end, many of them said, you know, I would like to work one day for a nonprofit organization, but my specialty will be marketing. My specialty will be accounting. They already had that dream before to work in marketing or in uh, accounting, but now they saw that they could do uh, they could, uh, you know, develop their passion at and at the same time help other people. So in, in, in the United States, we have 1.5 nonprofit organizations. So definitely that is a sector that provides uh, job opportunities. And I'm glad that we were able to create awareness around this, this particular um, sector. But like that, you know, there could be many others, as I mentioned, you know, the bakery, financial literacy. So there are so many things and activities that are being done. And if you go local, let's, let's say in Ethiopia, they, one of the interests they are um, showing is in tourism. So one of the ideas of the girls is there is a typical um house or home construction that is called Gojo Bet in Ethiopia. And it's a circular 
uh, house made of mud at the base, and then the the top is all uh, hay and you know uh, stray hay and on on top. So uh, they uh, it's very beautiful, and it has um, you know some very architectural uh, um, features that are are important. For example, the smoke that they have inside this house filters through the hay on top and keeps the mosquitoes and the bugs away. So the idea of these girls is why don't we create why don't we create one and then uh, ask tourists who are coming from Europe to do a sort of a social tourism where they come yes they visit a beautiful country Africa Ethiopia but at the same time they live we would say as the romans do so they live you know in the context in the environment of the local population and they learn a lot so they would sell local products to them and this is an idea that came from them of course they want to create also a website so that they can um, accept reservations so this is exactly what we would like to do through extracurricular activities you know and uh, create also group of people who have common interests who could come up with uh, entrepreneurial idea one day and develop them together. Love it. That's awesome. You know, uh, before we close, I mean, because we're getting we're getting close now to finishing up. Uh, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where would you send them? I would say, you know, the first step is definitely our website because it's a repository of information about the many our activities that we have, the programs, the events, the current uh, urgent projects we have. So our website is achanceinlife.org. Again, achanceinlife.org. But if you are more traditional and you would like to give us a call, our phone number is 212-980-8770. Awesome. And I'll have those in the show notes also. So they'll be able to find that information there as well. So good stuff. I, all right. I got two last questions for you, Gabriele. They go like this. And the, the first one is, how do you keep going? You personally, when things get overwhelming and there's so much going on that you want to quit. I uh, traveled extensively before COVID and I would visit, uh, at, no, I would travel at least twice a month to visit our programs overseas. These are not easy trips. When I go there and I see the smiles on the kids we are helping, that gives me the energy, that gives me the motivation to go on. And our founder, Monsignor John Patrick Carolabing, used to say, until there are children suffering, we have no right to stop. And uh, so that is, in a way, my, my, my mission. Uh, in, in the world, according to the UN, there are still 150 million kids living on the streets. So we are on a mission to change that, and together we can do it. Awesome. What a, what a great thing to keep in mind that would keep you, uh, okay, this other stuff doesn't matter because I'm still trying to do this. So good, good stuff. Uh, last one. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, yes, um, she was my elementary teacher in Italy, and she was amazing. She's no longer alive, of course. You know, we're talking about many years ago. I won't tell you my age, but <laughs> her name was uh, Amalia Mele, which is probably translated into English would be actually a funny name, Emily Apple. So um, she really encouraged me to develop my writing skills. I had a passion for writing, for writing poems, and she encouraged me so much. 
Uh, and I remember, you know, during the first days of school, I was not able to spell a word. I don't know what is what was wrong with me, but I, you know, writing was really hard for me. I remember I couldn't spell the word uh, watch in Italian, of course, orologio. And that, you know, she came and talked to my parents. But then, you know, she was the one who really followed me and encouraged me and gave me gave me the motivation to um, to keep. Uh, working on those skills, and they became my passion. Uh, I confess, I even um, wrote a book, which I never published, and it's a mystery book about something that happened at the Vatican. I won't tell you how it, well, I haven't published it, so I can tell you, I guess, but no, uh, to tell you that, you know, what a teacher, how a teacher can influence your life, and she definitely did it. That's excellent. I love it. Gabriele, thanks so much for talking with me today. It was awesome to hear about A Chance in Life's purpose and focus. Uh, Looking forward to hearing more about the magic that you and your teams are working on. Uh, uh, Wishing you the very best in all you do. Stephen, thank you so much. And here I would like to conclude with an invitation. I would like you to come and visit, once COVID is over, one of the programs we have overseas. Again, not Italy because that's too easy, but we'll go maybe to Ethiopia or India or Latin America so that you can experience what we're doing, and then maybe tell your friends and continue your great job on this podcast. Thank you. Hey, did you know that you can buy me a soft drink? That's right. By going to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, you can support Teaching Learning Leading K-12 by making a donation. And it's really cool. We got this little cool uh, soft drink cup right there. <laughs> that would be so awesome if you do that. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto. And you can help support Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Thank you so much. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.